What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage, episode 110, where I'm going to be talking about Outlaw Star, an anime from the 90s, FX, a uh, fantastic neo-noir uh, film from 1986, Flesh-Eating Mothers, a horror film, Body Double, another neo-noir, Superstition, another horror film from the 80s, and uh, I'm going to be talking about some video games as well, from PS1 uh, to Super Nintendo, as well as a uh, Famicom-based game, uh, the uh, Japanese Nintendo, as what it's also known as, Family Computer. You guys get it. Anyway... Uh, I decided to split it up. I uh, talk about the films first, and that's about 37 to 38 minutes. So if you want to just hear video game talk, go about 38 minutes to about 40 minutes up the uh, road and just hear me talk about video games. Or if you want to just hear movies, listen for the first 38 minutes. Uh, before I get into all of that, I uh, actually saw last weekend a TSOL, True Sounds of Liberty, in a local uh, dive bar down the road from me, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, Jack Grisham is still phenomenal. He had a really cool suit on. He had a Creature from a Black Lagoon-like suit. On the back of his suit, you know, I had the main face. It was really cool. Uh, Ronnie still plays guitar. The uh, drummer as well as the uh, bassist are uh, new members. But, I mean, you know, they still sound great. They still play great. It, it was phenomenal. And the last song was Code Blue. I mean, you can't you can't beat that. Uh, Jack Grisham also had a pretty cool story about uh, Justin Thirst, the uh, original bassist who sadly uh, took his own life from uh, Pennywise. Uh, Fletcher, they were all at a party together, Fletcher being the guitarist for Pennywise. They all got together and they were drinking. And uh, he gave the original bassist... Uh, for TSOL, uh, Justin Thirst uh, bassist, you know, after he killed himself. And then the next day he, uh, you know, hit up <laughs> um, Jack and was like, hey, can I get that bass back? And uh, Jack was like, no, man. Like, and he never really bugged him about getting the bass back. That's just incredible. And that was the exact bass that he was playing at the show when I saw him. It was a Rickenbacker. Super, super cool story to hear. Just, it, it was a good, good, solid show. I'm glad I got to see them. You know, for those of you who enjoy, uh, the Smiths meets like the Cure meets like, I guess, like a gothic punk. I guess that's pretty much what TSOL is, I guess, in a nutshell. But uh, anyway, that being said, I'm on vacation, so I decided to do a podcast uh, today. And like I said, I'm talking, uh, what, I got one, two, three, four, five, like five movies and uh, an anime, as well as I have about eight video games I'm going to be talking about. So here it is, everybody. Episode 110. Let's go. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage, episode 110. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking first about an anime, and then a pretty damn good film, and then one film that's meh, uh, another great film after that, and to follow up with a conclusion of Talking Films, I have another film after that that's phenomenal as well. So only one stinker in the bunch, but here it is, this uh, anime I've been watching, Outlaw Star, a TV series that came out in 98 to 2001. It's phenomenal. I believe it's only 28 episodes. It's rated TVMA. It's on par with Trigun and uh, Cowboy Bebop. I'm surprised, like, nobody really talks about this one. It was, it's phenomenal so far. I'm about maybe halfway through it right now. <clears throat> Sorry, let me get some water. Uh, has a 7.9 out of only 4,100 reviews. And uh, I'd say that rating is fair, but I feel like there needs to be more viewers of this show who are enthusiasts of... Like I said, Trigun and uh, Cowboy Bebop meets kind of like Gundam, I guess, per se, in its own right. Uh, the adventure of an outlaw crew of an advanced uh, starship. It's an action adventure. It's it's just so, so good. Highly, highly recommended. I use um, animetake.tv. You can stream it. You can download from there. It's entirely up to you what you want to do with it. Uh, I don't recognize any voice actors, uh, whether they speak English or not. The version I'm watching is in uh, Japanese with English subtitles, and it's just, it's incredible. I absolutely love this show. Uh, more similar to this is it's telling me a Tenchi Muyo. I've definitely heard of that one, and it's basically 
the anime version of like Star Wars per se. I, I need to get on uh, the ball with that one. I definitely need to watch that one. And of course, already as I've mentioned, uh, Gundam are ones that are similar to this as well as the Big O. Storyline here is Gene Starwin, the main guy, uh, the redhead. Uh, kind of reminds me of like Roni Kenshin in a way, uh, Samurai X, I guess, if you will. Anyway, dreams of a life as an outlaw and a fate smiles on him as he seems to suddenly wind up with a great job. But things go awry and he finds himself the new owner of the fastest, most technologically advanced spaceship in the galaxy. Unfortunately, it's stolen and the owners want it back, along with his partner Jim Hawkins and lovely Melfina, who happens to be a cyborg. I don't really want to give too much away, I mean, other than... Maybe just characters, I guess. Uh, Gene must fight his way across the galaxy, battling pirates, aliens, and assassins as he attempts to discover the secrets of the outlaw star. Taglines here is future hero, next generation. That actually makes perfect sense because on the cover, it's a yin and yang symbol, and it says future hero, next generation on it. So that makes perfect sense. Trivially, let's take a look here. During the opening series, if you go frame by frame when Gene is firing his gun, you'll notice the word bang appears very briefly in the middle of the gun blast. That's pretty cool. I, I don't think I've actually managed to slow it down and notice that. Outlaw Star is based on the 1997 manga series. Who knew? Of course it is, because they always typically are. <laughs> of the same name by Takahiko Ito. The series is in turn a spinoff of an early parody manga series also by Ito called Space Hero Tales, Uchi Eiyu Monogatari, also known as an English feature hero story making perfect sense to the tagline, as I've mentioned. The Outlaw Star anime series has its own spinoff TV series, Angel Links. I might have to look into that one. <clears throat> Lastly, Fred Luo, the homosexual weapons dealer within Outlaw Star, makes a guest appearance within the first episode of the spinoff anime, Angel Links. That's also really interesting. That's cool. Okay. What else we got here? Released January 15th, 2001 in the U.S., so after its uh, closure, I guess, if you will. I don't know how they managed to do three seasons with only 28 episodes, but whatever. Production companies, Satsu Agency and Sunrise. Let's see what Wiki has to say. There's usually not too much on IMDb or uh, Wiki when it comes to anime in my perspective. Um, anyway, let's, uh, here we go. Critical reception for Outlaw Star has mostly been positive, many reviewers praising the anime series, particularly in its animation style and its balance of dramatic and comedic elements. True, it balances it very, very well. Uh, however, some found that fault with the show's pacing, believing that the storyline's quality begins to wane after the first few episodes. Yeah, I can see that. It's a little bit of a slog here and there, but it, it's still enjoyable. Sunrise produced the spinoff series Angel Links, as I've mentioned, airing in Japan in 99. Preliminary plans were made to create a direct sequel in the form of a single episode OVA, original video animation, I use anime Sugi.2 to uh, watch those, uh, called Sword of Wind, but production never began. Interesting. Original run for the series was September 20th, 1996 in Japan, all the way until May 20th of 1999, obviously in the States, uh, January of uh, 2001. Uh, what else we got here? Production-wise... Created by Morningstar Studio. Morningstar makes me always think of Castlevania because that's the weapon that uh, Simon Belmont uses, so that's awesome. Writer and chief artist Takehito Ito was aided in his duties by Hajime Yatate, a pseudonym of writers at Sunrise. Character concept and image boards illustrators Yutaka Minoa and Hijami Jinguji, excuse me, I'm not Japanese, <laughs> and a team of production designers and assistant artists. Outlaw Star takes place in the towards, uh, in Toward Star's era. Same universe as Ito's uh, Monogatari, future hero story, of course, the uh, uh, manga series. A pulp science fiction manga that was first serialized in 88. 
described the earlier work as something out of a boy's dream and took a much more mature scientific approach when writing Outlaw Star. The, also, uh, the author also references aspects of Chinese culture when creating Outlaw Star. I, I didn't know that, and now I know. Uh, the series itself was produced by Sunrise and directed by Mitsu, Mitsuro Hongo, whose previous credits include the comedy Crayon Shin-Chan. I know Crayon Shin-Chan. They've made a lot of games via Famicom and Super Famicom. Uh, the series Shamanic Princess. The script was chiefly written by Chiba, who wrote about three-quarters of the episodes. Character designs were handled by Hiroyuki Hitake and Takuya Saito. The show's vehicles were designed by Ishigaraki and Macross and Gundam. Well, that makes perfect sense because Super Fortress uh, Dimension Macross is a fantastic shoot-em-up side-scrolling uh, shooter on a Super Nintendo. Speaking of uh, video games, I will get into those later. I, I have a fucking couple video games that I've played and I would like to talk about them. The series features opening theme through the night written and performed by Masahiko Iramachi and two closing themes. Uh, what else we got here? That's about it. Manga, anime, 26 episode adaptation. Excuse me, not 28. Uh, broadcasted from January 8th, 1998 in the States, uh, from Tokyo, of course, until June 25th, 1998, according to, uh, Wikipedia rather than, um, what IMDb stating 2001. Uh, excuse me. The uh, role of Fred Luo, the recurring uh, homosexual character, as I've mentioned, was considerably toned down for the TV series. Cartoon Network had no specific editing policy with regard to gay characters, but that overt sexuality or implied sexuality of any kind are not allowed. Got it. Okay. Well, it was also a different time. Things are much more uh, acceptable now. It was aired on the late night Adult Swim block through 2002. I definitely don't remember seeing this one on there. But then again... I have to remind, like, my younger viewers, including, like, my nephew, who's, you know, 10 years old now, and it's literally at the click of a button. You have to remember, 20 years ago, the anime was, it was, it was booming, but it was still a very, very slow process. It's not nearly as well prevalent in our society as it is nowadays with Funko Pops, toys, uh, t-shirts, anything, you name it, it's, it's there now. You know, the, this was our escape, was Adult Swim, where you go to the toy store, and I'm like, oh my god, there's a Goku toy, you know, like, from Dragon Ball Z, but... It's just so readily part of our society now that, you know, well, I guess you're welcome, new generation, because we had to hunt this stuff down 20 years ago. However, the broadcast was canceled late in the year, and according to Atkins, the network allowed it to uh, its rights to the anime to expire by 2003. Outlaw Star was aired in the UK until October of 2002. That's interesting. Did not know that. What else we got here? Merchandise. Outlaw Records. Star Wars Warrior Knight Outlaw Star. Uh, Im imprinted in November of 1998. There was a, a vinyl record, and that's pretty cool. 2001. Bandai released an Outlaw Star action figure set. Oh, I bet they're expensive now, though. That'd be so cool to have. Set as a part of a line based on its licensed anime figures, of course. Set contains the Outlaw Star ship and characters Jean and Melfina. That's it? Well, I mean, I guess if... If it's small in terms of production quantity as well as just the line of characters within the series is only a couple, then sure. I, I mean, I guess they're probably super expensive. Um, Asako Nishida, one of the show's animation directors, compiled her contributions towards the Stars of Air franchise in a 2009 art book. Receptively, as I've stated, it's incredible. Uh, it, uh, what am I looking at here? Jacob Chirosh of Them Anime Reviews additionally noted that high animation quality and character designs to be less lucky and lacking in the special aura of Sunrise's acclaimed 98 series, Cowboy Bebop. Makes perfect sense why there is an alliteration to what I already mentioned. It's relative. Uh, Jonathan Clements and Helen McCarthy, authors of Anime Encyclopedia, agreeably denoted Outlaw Star as no competition for Cowboy Bebop in terms of style, content, or execution. 
I disagree with that personally, but hey, teach their own, I suppose. Legacy-wise, 99 Sunrise produced a spin-off TV series Angel Links, as I've mentioned, due to the lack of the franchise's popularity in Japan and the busy schedule of animation director Mitsuto Hongo, no production date was set for a sort of win the OVA. In October 2001, Takahiko Ito commented that his team only had a static preliminary plans for the sequel series that they could not perhaps continue the manga series in the future. Well, sounds like it's dead in the water, unfortunately, but uh, it is, it's phenomenal. It, it's a lot of fun. I would highly recommend it. Anyway, moving on, I'm going to be talking about the film called FX. And I, this was a, a no-brainer for me as soon as I looked it up on IMDb. I can't remember where I found it or if somebody recommended it to me. I was like, dude, this is a really cool concept for a film. And I thought it was just fantastic. It's like Darkman meets like Dick Tracy meets, you know, a Giallo Lucio Fulci type uh, special effects uh, creator. It's just, it's, I know it's as weird as it sounds, but it's, it's awesome. FX, 1986 rated R, hour 49. It has a 6.7 out of 22,000 reviews. I'd say that amount of viewers is, yeah, yeah, I'd say around there because it, it's rather obscure. I mean, and it's been around for, what, you know, 37 years now, do the math, right? Yeah, yeah, 37. I mean, and I would at least give it a seven, if not maybe a seven and a half. I I thought it was great. Uh, the tagline here on the cover art for it is, uh, Roland, uh, Roly Tyler, excuse me, is the movie's best special effects man. Now, somebody wants him to do it for real, but is he the weapon or the victim? Is it murder or is it just effects? Ha, ha, ha. It, it, it works, but it's a rather long explanation. It, they didn't need to make it that long. They could have just put, is it murder or is it FX? You know, they could have just shortened it. But anyway, it was an action thriller. A movie special effects man is hired to fake a real-life mob killing for a witness protection plan, but finds his own life is in danger. Directed by Robert Mandel. Let's see what else this individual did. Let me get a sip of water. Sorry, guys. Oh, boy. All right. I don't recognize anything else he did other than The Substitute. Definitely heard of that one. Just, oh, he directed School Ties. That is a phenomenal one. I love School Ties with Brendan Fraser. The, uh, he plays a Jewish guy who goes to a Christian school, and they're just essentially just ripping him a new one because of his religious beliefs. But I uh, highly recommend it. School Ties is awesome. It's like on par with like Dead Poets Society. Just really, really cool drama. Anyway, starring uh, Brian Brown, the guy who plays the uh, Australian... Um, uh, what is it? a bartender from the film Cocktail, you know, who ends up uh, killing himself in the end of that film. He is the main protagonist in this. He's the special effects guy. And it's it's great. Highly recommend this film. Uh, Brian Dennehy is also in this film. He plays the uh, kind of like washed up uh, lieutenant uh, detective of what's going on with the case. Uh, it, he does a phenomenal job. Uh, Jerry Orbach plays uh, essentially the Italian mafia man, Nicholas DeFranco. And I don't really want to give it away about his character, but uh, yeah, definitely pay attention to it. Uh, Cliff Young plays Lipton, which was also a very well-known face. Mason Adams, Colonel Mason is his name in the film. Uh, Joe Grafasi plays Mickey. There's a lot of recognizable people that I just didn't necessarily know their name. And now, obviously, putting a name to the face, I'm like, all right. Uh, there's definitely a sequel that came out. It has a 5.9. Uh, I'm going to have to find that somewhere and watch it because it just looks like so much fun. Uh, at least... The first one was, I, I don't know about the second one, we'll see, but having watched the first one, I'm like, I owe myself a favor in watching the uh, second film. Okay, all right, here, I will give you a little more of the synopsis in the storyline. Uh, Roly is an expert in the art of special effects, has a reputation built on many low-budget hack-and-slash films, including such titles as I Dismember Mamba, I Dismember Mamba, uh, Mama, excuse me, <laughs> I can't fucking speak English. 
and it is quite surprised to find that the FBI has a job for him. He is to stage the murder of a gangster who is about to enter the witness protection program, agreeing that things then get complicated. All the while, a New York City police detective, Leo McCarthy, is investigating the faked murder and can't understand why the FBI is even less helpful than usual. So he basically gets set up. Tagline here for this is just murder by illusion. See, that's all you needed. Just simple, nothing too too uh, vile or uh, too explanatory. A uh, little less exposition, I feel like, leads more to the imagination, personally. Anyway, special effects man John Steers claimed that he had been offered money by government agencies to simulate various things as depicted in this film. Film debut of Angela Bassett, Mill Gibson, and Harrison Ford were also considered the roles of Rolly Tyler and Leo McCarthy. That's interesting and i, I kind of like it the way that it is I, I not that it's not i think mel at the time because he probably could have done it because of the whole lethal weapon and then even before that mad max around that time but harrison ford was already i guess a, a star-studded actor compared to mel gibson at the time but uh you know hey i'm glad that uh, brian brown got it many felt that the film would have been more successful with a less confusing title this is why in the markets outside u.s it was released as fx murder by illusion and why the sequel went by the name FX, The Deadly Art of Illusion. Okay, well, I still don't think it was confusing, though. That's just me. At around nine minutes, posters for Zombie, 1979, Lucio Fulci, Helia, and Fade to Black, I need to watch that one, 1980, are seen hanging up in Rolly Tyler's apartment in several scenes. Also, the film Poor Albert and Little Annie, 1972, are mentioned. That's all I have for trivia on that. I gotta watch Fade to Black. I mean, it's a solid Metallica song, I'll give you that. Okay, released... February 7th, 1986, filmed in Geneva, Canton, in uh, Switzerland. Did not know that. Produced by Orion Pictures, as well as Jack Weiner. Um, budget was $10 million at the time, and it grossed $20 million. So it obviously got its money back. It did pretty well for itself. Let's see what Wiki has to say about it. Film was released to a positive review from critics and was a box office success, earning $20.6 million on a $10 million budget, as I've just mentioned. So Wikipedia and IMDb match up there in terms of uh, monetary value. So that's interesting because most of the time they're way off the spinoff tv series fx the series was produced wow from 96 to 98 did not know that production wise the unsolicited screenplay was written by two novice writers actor gregory fleeman and documentarian robert t meganson producer jack weiner read the script which was submitted at a low budget tv movie and felt that it should be made into a theatrical release his co-producer Dottie Freyd and robert mandel an off-broadway director they didn't want to hire an action director, but instead wanted a director who would bring a realistic touch to the film, making the audience care about the main character, which they succeeded, having been impressed with Mandel's direction of actors in Independence Day. Interesting. Well, Independence Day also came out like, what is that, like, I can't even do math right now. About 10 years later, yeah. But whatever. Mandel's accepted the job because he wanted to dispel the perception that he was a soft, arty director. Initially, he was not impressed with the film's screenplay, and he felt that he was not well-crafted, but felt that it provided for a lot of action and a lot of things that I did not have under my belt. True. <coughs> Excuse me. In preparation for the film's action sequences, Mandel studied chase scenes from Bullet, awesome, the Steve McQueen uh, film, and the French connection with uh, Gene Hackman. Hell yeah. To pull off the film's special effects, producers hired John Steers, who had worked on eight films of the James Bond series. James Bond, not James Bond, whatever. You guys get it. Apparently, I can't pluralize James. <laughs> well, I can pluralize Sean Connery's, yes. <laughs> I gotta stop. <laughs> Sharing a special effects Academy Award for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the first one that came out in 77. Principal photography took place during the summer of 85 around New York, as well as Toronto, and locations included Sherway Gardens, in 
Etobicoke? What a name, sure. A previous screening in uh, SFV, San Fernando Valley. Nice. Produced some of the best statistic Orion Pictures had seen in some time. A week before its release, a film industry screening was very successful as its premiere in the U.S. Film Festival, later known as the Sundance Film Festival. All right. Receptively, 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. All right. They agree with me for a change. Out of 27 critics, the site's consensus states, smart, twisty, and perfectly cast. The effects assisted neo-noir. Yes, it is very much so a neo-noir. It is... It's awesome. Totally recommend this film. Reminding viewers that a well-told story is the most special effect of all. Yes, agreed. That's really that's all you have to do, is just tell a good fucking story. I mean, I feel like everything else is just bonus points. These are just, you know, sprinkles and like <laughs> chocolate topping and caramel. The fact that they had great sense of direction, great uh, acting, great uh, special effects. It was action driven. It just it was well paced. Like that was all the icing on top of the cake. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. Vincent Canby praised the look of the film in his review of New York Times, writing, The movie, which looks as if it had been made on an A-picture budget, has a lot of zest. One associates with special effects-filled B-pictures. Roger Ebert giving the film three and a half out of four stars. Ooh, this is what he has to say. Let's go. This movie takes a lot of delight in being more psychologically complex than it has to be. It contains fight and shootouts and big chase scenes. They are all firmly centered on who the characters are and what they mean to one another. Agree. That's all you have to do. Tie everything in together. You don't have to just... Have action for the sake of fucking having action if it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. All right. That's all I got on FX. Highly recommended 1986. Check that film out. All right. I'm going to get into a stinker, and I only have one page on it because Wikipedia doesn't manage to have a flesh-eating mother's page. It's only on IMDb. That being said, 1988, rated R, hour and 29, has a 4.3 out of only 1,300 reviews, and rightly so because it's just... It's almost one of those, like, so bad that it's, like, sort of, like, entertainingly good and bad. It's just, ugh. It's free on Tubi if you want to watch it. I don't recommend it. It's not very good. <laughs> it's definitely a horror comedy. Uh, suburban housewives turn into vicious cannibals after committing adultery with the neighborhood womanizer. This man essentially has a uh, STD that he apparently gives to women that he sleeps with, and they turn into cannibalistic mothers, essentially. <laughs> Directed by James Aviles Martin. Let's see what else this guy did. And that sounds very really familiar. Uh, he did... Well, I don't recognize anything else he did. And that's probably a good thing. Because they all have terrible ratings. And they're all goofy comedic horror. Anyway, I, I like bad movies. But damn, this was just... Whew, this was, this was bad. Alright, anybody do I know in this one? Nope, and no faces to the uh, names either. Alright, ooh... They're mentioning more like this, Fade to Black. I gotta, I gotta find that one and watch it. That looks awesome. Storyline here. For some strange reason ever explained, a few of the local PTA-going moms suddenly turn on their offspring. That's not true. Uh, why? Why? Are, oh, that's not true at all. Like It's explained in the film. You're dumb. For much of the film, they walk around looking mutated and making funny wisecracks. Well, you're a freaking idiot, Michael Cucinata. Yeah, nice name. Cucinata at brick.purchase. I'm gonna have to email that guy and be like, dude, you're dumb. All right, sincerely, me. <laughs> taglines the bit off more than they could chew all right that works i like that because it's kind of funny it fits with the film trivially let's take a look bulk of the cast was found through an ad placed in a backstage magazine and it shows because their acting was god awful the police station was a set built at a local community college in upstate new york all right also the famous people who had vd as seen on the notice in the clinic wall are julius caesar napoleon bonaparte al capone adolf hitler <laughs> what okay whatever the opening pre-credits, wow, what the hell, I can't even speak English, that wasn't, I said quit it, I meant to say credit, what am I, fucking, 
I don't know, Bugs Bunny? What the hell's wrong with me? No, uh, Elmo Fudd. Okay, all right, moving on. Jeez, ADD is kicking in. Okay, opening pre-credit scene was filmed a year later after the principal shooting of the film had wrapped. Lastly, post-production of this film took two years altogether to do. Wow, and it's still very, very bad. All right, what else we got here? Released September 16th, 1988, also known as Madres Cannibales. So that's just, you know, cannibal mothers uh, in Spanish. Filmed in Rockland County, New York, USA. Box office, $10,000 estimated, and there's no sense of gross. They probably tanked. They probably spent everything and just got drunk and did dumb shit. Sounds about right, because it was pretty bad. Anyway, moving on to another uh, film that's actually worth talking about, because Flesh Eating Mothers was not very good. I'm glad I watched it nonetheless, because I started it a while back, and I was like, you know what? I need to finish it, and I'm glad that I did, despite it being crap. All right, Body Double, 1984. Another neo-noir, essentially. It's awesome. Rated R, hour and 54. has a 6.8 out of 37,000 reviews. I'd at least give it a 7. And as far as uh, in terms of raters, uh, 37,000, I'd say that's right. Um, It's a a crime, drama, mystery, neo-noir type film. A young actor's obsession with spying on a beautiful woman who lives nearby leads to a baffling series of events with drastic consequences. Directed by Brian De Palma, who also did Dress to Kill, which I also have, and I will uh, watch it and talk about it uh, probably next episode, more than likely, if I don't do an episode with somebody. Uh, He also directed Snake Eyes, the Nicolas Cage film. I love that movie, as well as The Untouchables. So he's very well known within the movie industry. I guess I just didn't recognize his uh, directorial, uh, I guess, attributes compared to other well-known directors, more or less. But yeah, I mean, all of those other ones that I mentioned, I've watched other than Dress to Kill, and those are all phenomenal. Untouchables was badass. I talked about it. Snake Eyes, I've seen it many times. Haven't talked about it, but it's phenomenal. I love it. Anyway, all right. Let's get to the uh, cast. Uh, Craig Wasson plays Jake. Melanie Griffith plays Holly. Uh, who else is in this that we know? Uh, Dennis Franz. I believe he's in like NCIS or something. He's in one of those TV shows in the 90s and early millennium. A very well-known uh, face. Uh, who else is in this that's worth mentioning? I can't recognize anybody. Oh, Monte Landis as Sid Goldberg. Okay, I definitely know his face. Anyway. All right. Oh, storyline here. All right. I will tell this to you guys, and then the rest is pretty much up to you whether you want to watch it or not. I would recommend it. Jake Scully, coming home to find his girlfriend with another man, has to find a new place. In between his acting workshops and his job in a vampire B film, he scans the paper looking for anything. He happens to meet Sam Bouchard. Yeah, that's not the real guy's name. You'll find that out if you watch this film. Anyway, a fellow actor who needs a house sitter. Both are pleased with the arrangement that will have Jake staying in the house as, uh, and for a sweetener, Sam shows him his favorite neighbor, a well-built woman who strips with her window open each night. Jake becomes obsessed with meeting her and is able to help her recover her purse from a thief, but shows his own phobia. He is incapacitated by claustrophobia when the thief runs from the tunnel, or runs through a tunnel, excuse me. He uh, essentially finds uh, the uh, girl, and there's this guy who goes after her and steals her purse, and he runs after her into a tunnel, and he manages to get the purse, and anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't want to give it away. Shows his own phobia. He's incapacitated by claustrophobia. Okay, I already said that. When Jake witnesses a murder, he finds out that the police love to pin crimes on peeping toms. Right, he's the uh, essentially innocent witness slash uh, bystander, and obviously the t- detectives and the cops only have him to go on, so they're looking at him as a suspect. I get it. Jake discovers that here are just too many coincidences, but must hunt them down himself without the police. Each time he's tried to go go to the police, they don't believe him, and they still think he's a murderer. Anyway, taglines, a seduction, a mystery, a murder. Yeah. 
it's basically like a neo-noir like hitchcock pretty much it's like rear window meets kind of like a giallo-ish in, in its own right neo-noir yeah i'd say that's pr a pretty good uh aspect to it anyway trivially brian de palma originally planned for this to be the first hollywood film to boast unsimulated sex scenes the studio thought differently well yeah i, I get that the Frankie Goes to Hollywood Relax rock clip porno film sequence features penthouse pinup centerfold Lindsay Freeman billed as Alexander Day. Adult film star actress Annette Haven uncredited and Carl Lott billed as Pamela Weston and horror movie screen queen Brink Stevens. Cool. The distinctive futuristic octagon-shaped top of the hills ultra-modern uh, house scene in the film is known as the Chemosphere and is located just above <clears throat> Mulholland Drive in the San Fernando Valley region of the Hollywood Hills in L.A. The building was once described by the Encyclopedia Britannica as the most modern home built in the world. Architecturally modernist, dwelling was designed by American architect John Lautner in 1960. Brett Easton Ellis' novel American Psycho, hell yeah, adapted into American Psycho in 2000, references this film many times. I guess I don't remember that. I've definitely read the book and I've seen the film. I will probably have to uh, maybe reread it. It's a pretty graphic book, man, for sure. I mean, I mean the movie is pretty downright... Uh, insane as well but the book holy cow it is one of patrick bateman's favorite films and he's rented it over 37 times dennis franz based his portrayal of ruben the director on brian de palma and that makes perfect perfect sense i i can see that and i can see the reference now all right let's get back to it uh released october 26 1984 also known as uh i, I don't know what language that is i'm just going to move on uh, filmed Obviously, at the Chemisphere House, as I mentioned, in L.A., California. So it's all done off of Mulholland Drive, probably Rodeo Drive, like Beverly Hills area. Production companies, Columbia, as well as Delphi 2 Productions. Its budget was $10 million, and it only grossed $8 million, despite its uh, great reviews. Anyway, let's see what Wikipedia has to say about it. All right. Excuse me, I had breakfast like a couple hours ago, and I just keep burping. Excuse me. I had an avocado, a little breakfast uh, sausage egg bowl, and a banana, and now I'm drinking water. All right. At the time of its release, the film was a commercial failure, excuse me, earning just $8 million at the box office against a production budget of $10 million, as well as mixed reviews, though Melanie Griffith's performance earned praise and brought her a Golden Globe nomination. Subsequently, it has been better received and is now considered to be a cult film. Agreed. I, I think it was just probably ahead of its time and people weren't rest, uh, readily maybe, uh, you know, feeling the need to watch, uh, I guess, uh, sort of light smut i guess but not necessarily though it's also like i said a neo-noir uh murder detective based film it's not strictly just you know <laughs> a smut peddling film but anyway all right production wise after de palma's success of carrie dressed to kill in his remake of scarface uh columbia pictures offered him a three-picture deal with body double set to be the first film cool all right uh, principal photography began in L.A. February 21st, 1984, uh, also featuring the L.A. Farmer's Market, as I've mentioned, the Rodeo Collection Mall and Rodeo Drive, uh, Tower Records, and as well as the Chemisphere House. Uh, okay. Wow. Post-production, the film was initially given an X by the MPAA because many theaters refused to show X-rated films. De Palma had to re-edit the film as he did on Dress to Kill and Scarface. De Palma cut what he called a few minor things from the porno movie scene and secured an R rating. Okay, all right, well, you gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. De Palma said Columbia did not support the film due to its excessive violence. He said, do you think the guys who run Coca-Cola want publicity about violence? They're very aware of the public images, and when they start seeing articles in New York Times about their product and violence, they go crazy. They're not showmen, they're corporation types. Wow. 
uh, thematics here, uh, make-believe, illusion. Yeah, I because, mean, right, you're led to believe certain things, and it has that sense of uh, vertigo meets, like, rear window, as I've mentioned, via um, Alfred Hitchcock sense of voyeuristic exhibitionism. And it's almost like a satire of Hollywood as well, you know? Uh, receptively. Ooh, Roger Ebert praising the film, giving it three and a half out of four stars, calling it an exhilarating exercise in pure filmmaking, a thriller in the Hitchcock tradition, thank you, in which there's no particular point except that the hero is flawed, weak, and is in terrible danger, and we identify with him completely. Yeah, yeah, very well said. I, I can get on board with that. I, I uh, yeah, applaud you there, Mr. Ebert. Ooh, his counterpart, Gene Siskel of the Chicago Times, giving the film two and a half out of four. When the drill came onto the screen, De Palma lost me in control of this film. He's probably thinking of it more or less like as a, was it Slumber Party Massacre 2 with the drill, you know, the drill uh, on the guitar, which was awesome. I love that movie. Anyway, at the point, Body Double ceased to be a homage, excuse me, to Hitchcock and instead became a cheap splatter film. It is not a very good one at that. Well, your counterpart thinks otherwise there, guy. Oh, man, what else we got here? Well, that's all I really got on this film. Oh, here we go. In pop culture, the 1989 black comedy Vampire's Kiss takes its title from the B-movie Jack Scully accent in this film. That's really cool. Uh, remake. A body double was remade in uh, 1993 in India as Pela Nasha. The film was directed by some name that I can't pronounce in his directorial debut. Interesting. It's probably not nearly as good as this one is, but that's all I got on Body Double. I'm going to be talking about this last film before I decide to take a break and talk about some video games. Superstition. I saw this on one of those like uh, grindhouse, like sleaze horror uh, forums on Facebook. The one film on the right was uh, Mausoleum, and I was like, I love that film. Such a great, iconic cover. And then uh, this one was on the left. Uh, I think the guy who uh, put up like the ad was like, I, I got a double feature tonight, and this is what I'm watching. And I was like, I've never heard of Superstition, so I decided to read the comments, and I'm glad that I did, and I'm glad that I managed to uh, score a copy of it and watch it because it's phenomenal. I would say it's on par with like you know, uh, Friday the 13th meets, uh, you know, I'd say it was almost like a, uh, predecessor to like the conjuring. It's like the, if the conjuring was more or less like a, uh, supernatural slasher, it, that's really what it is. It's phenomenal. It meets like everything. Like the acting was great. The sense of direction, the coloring, the, uh, special effects, like it was just a great story to be told. It, it's totally on par with, like I said, like Halloween, Friday the 13th, The Burning, uh, you know, The Prowler in terms of uh, classic 80s horror that needs to be discussed and watched. So that's why I watched it. And now I'm going to talk to you about it. 1982, it is unrated. It's only an hour and 25 and it goes by fast. It's very well paced. It only has a 5.7 out of 3,200. I'd at least give it like a six and a half. I, I thought it was phenomenal. A witch put to death in 1692 swears vengeance on her persecutors and returns to the present day to punish their descendants. Directed by James W. Robertson. Let's see what else this individual did because I don't recognize the name. Uh, yeah, he was uh, apparently one of the cameramen on the film Rat Race that came out in 2001, which is basically a remake of A Mad Mad World that came out in the 60s. But uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> All right, well, well done there, uh, Mr. Robertson. All right, scrolling down, let's see what we have here in terms of cast. I don't really recognize anybody, and that's okay, because they did a great fucking job regardless. Yeah, I don't recognize any names or faces. Anyway, all right, storyline here. A family moves into a long-condemned New England household with a big pond out back that everybody loves to swim in. Soon, however, they find that the pond was the site of an execution by a drowning of a witch 300 years prior. 
and she's back to re revenge herself on uh, anybody nearby, whether they're Catholic or not. Taglines, you'll believe it just before you die. Perfect, that's all you need. Trivially, let's take a look here. <clears throat> Superstition was extremely popular on pre-cert video in the UK on the VTC label in the early 1980s. It was so popular that it actually got a subsequent cinema release in 84 under the title The Witch, courtesy of Bordeaux Films International. This is one of the few times a video release was followed up by a theatrical release. Yeah, I can see that. Rather than the other way around. It was then re-released by Stable Kane under the title The Witch, again on video shortly there afterward. The film was listed on Greater Manchester Policy... Yeah, Policy's list of films subject to seizure during the UK video Nasty Scare of the 80s. It was rather, later released fully uncut in 86 as The Witch on Stable Cane label under its original title in 2005 by Momentum. I got two more here. James Houghton had quit smoking eight years before he was cast as Reverend David Thompson. Director James Robertson insisted the character smoke, but Houghton was hesitant because he didn't want to relapse. Robertson convinced him to do it, and Houghton picked up smoking again for the next several years. Wow, that sucks. Wow. The movie was originally a sample story about a family moving into a house haunted by a witch. The characters Marion Arlen, the scenes at the lake, and the flashback sequences were all added after principal photography had already wrapped. Producers felt that these new elements would make the movie much more exciting. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. I mean, it, a little bit of context, you know, to the film rather than kind of just throwing you into it. I mean, yeah, it was great storytelling. I, I loved it. Released January 2nd, 1985 also known as Strictly Just the Witch. I think Superstition's pretty cool. It's a cool title. Really cool cover art, too. Back when, clearly, they had a sense of talent and, you know, made some really cool stuff. Uh, filmed at the Garbutt House in L.A., California. I did not know that. At 1809 Apex Avenue. I'm going to have to check that one out. Production company's Pana Panaria? Yeah, Panera Bread decided to make this film, you know, 40-whatever years ago. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> also released by Carolco Entertainment. We got a budget here. No, there's nothing on a budget. All right, let me see what Wikipedia has to say about this film. Uh, okay. Production. Superstition was an independent production film made in 1981 in Silver Lake, L.A., under the title The Witch, but was shelved until four years later. Wow. Theatrically released in uh, Italy in 1982. Um, ooh, here we go. Frank Marino, the president of Almy Pictures, promoted the film similarly to how he promoted the release of House by the Cemetery, which is a Lucio Fulci film. Awesome. This included giving the film a trailer, what he described as a sense of humor and having a brother, Theodore, do the voiceover in order to attract a secondary audience. Superstition received a brief release theatrically on the west coast of the U.S. before being released directly to home video in January of 85. Okay, critical response. What do we got here? The Baltimore Sun, Lou Cadrone of Baltimore Sun, panned the film writing that it isn't much mystery to Superstition, there is much pain, boredom, and violence, but mysterious it is not. Yeah, you can go suck one. Suck a lemon, right? Old school. I'm bringing it back. Suck a lemon. <laughs> Cedrone also criticized the film for its featuring the murder of a 13-year-old boy. It's a film, dude. It's a movie. Boston Globe's J. Carr deemed it How Much Can You Take splat flick, adding that director Robertson invests its low-grade guignol with more urgency than it deserves, and ho I hope he gets a shot at something better. Whatever. The Hackensack Records' uh, Lou Lemonick similarly criticized the film's violent content, describing it as a shocky, a schlocky, excuse me, slasher film, incorporating elements of poltergeist. Yes, agreed. Or uh, even a house party. Was it? Yeah, house party. The film. Yeah. Or no, party house. Was that the? Yeah, I think it was party house. Was the one that I watched. It was like '86. Also had elements of a poltergeist meets Exorcist. Anyway, represented by an orgy of modestly spooky special effects in the final reel. Critic Joe Bob Briggs ultimately praised the film for its gore effects, awarding it three out of four stars. Agreed. Thank you, Mr. Bob Briggs. Thank you. 
All Movie describes the film as a flamboyant yellow-style gore effects are the only highlight of this otherwise pedestrian supernatural horror film. You guys can go fuck off. How about that? All right. Superstition released DVD, Anchor Bay Entertainment, 2006. As of uh, 2019, in April, Scream Factory released it for the first time on Blu-ray. And that's all I got on these films. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to be talking about some video games. All right, welcome back. I decided to uh, <clears throat> set up my 42-inch uh, TV on uh, a little table next to my bed, and I uh, busted out the uh, PS1 Mini as well as the Super Nintendo Mini and some hacks that I have on there. And This is what I was playing. I was playing uh, Rampage World Tour on a uh, PS1. And uh, I, I don't think I ever really played it in the arcade. And I know it came out also on uh, NES, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, N64 is where I originally played it as a kid. And uh, the gameplay is still there. It holds up. It, it's still fun. It's just the gaming mechanics aren't very good. Like triangle is to jump. I think square was to uh, kick. And then uh, X was to punch. I feel like it should have been switched around. Like maybe X to jump and like, I don't know, circle to kick and like, I don't know, maybe square to uh, punch or something, and then maybe triangle to, like, punch the bottom, or, excuse me, punch the top of the uh, building that you climb and destroy it and so forth. But anyway, uh, released by uh, Midway Games in 1997 as a sequel to the game uh, Rampage, uh, designed originally in 1986 for the arcades, of course. Uh, it was also released on Sega Saturn. I did not know that. Perhaps if I go to Japan, I can find a Japanese copy. It might be kind of just cool to have. Uh, of course, on Microsoft Windows, uh, it's also re-released on the Midway Arcade Treasures and included in Rampage Total Destruction. Starring uh, George, Lizzie, and Ralph as uh, they essentially just go through, I don't know, different aspects of the uh, world and uh, different wars and so forth and different regions and Camelot and all that and basically just cause Rampage and destroy things. And it's it's fun. It's just, yeah, the game mechanics, I'm like, what the hell? Like, the buttons are strange. Uh, released. Shortly thereafter the home ports were released, World, War, World Tour was exhibited at the arcade shows in Japan but garnered little interest. The game would never be released in Japan. Wow. Okay. Receptively. Uh, reviewed the arcade game. Um, they derided the decision to continue using sprites for graphics instead of polygons. And very well done. It, it looks a lot like uh, kind of like how Donkey Kong is in terms of uh, actual um, you know, sprites rather than polygons. Fair enough, but all this remake will accomplish is to make gamers yearn for the original more than ever. Yeah, Electronic giving, uh, Gaming Monthly giving it that there's nothing like sitting down and playing a good old time game. It's even better to do it when it has been enhanced, but it still has the same feel as the original. Yeah, agreed. Ooh, let's see what Sega Saturn Magazine has to say. Similarly, uh, holding, holding that the coin-op was a great laugh for about 10 minutes or so, but the lack of variety in level design agreed. It's basically the same thing over and over. They just change the colors and maybe the year of what part of the world you're in. Uh, shallow nature of gameplay meant that it had... Uh, grown uh, tiresome over time because it's repetitive despite the meager improvements for the update the very same criticisms can be leveled at rampage world tour yeah i can get on board with that lastly game pro plenty of special moves and power-ups to discover as you lay waste to more than 100 cities the gameplay certainly lasts just don't expect it to change much which it doesn't i think i got maybe through like five or six levels and i was like okay i'm bored then again sometimes it's good to turn off your brain and turn up the cosmic carnage yeah there's also that too you have to be in the mood to play something like this uh it's still fun uh, I'm, I think I'm more prone to playing the 64 version. I just had, it was a nostalgic kind of time when I played it with, uh, buddies and I saw it on my PS1 and I was like, all right, let me bust it out. And it's okay. It's, it's all right. Uh, I then played a rascal, a platform game developed by Traveler's Tales, published by Psygnosis for the PS1. Main character and several enemies were designed by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. 
which is also really cool. I had the original disc and then I realized that I had it digitally and I was like, I don't need the disc. Let me give it to somebody who actually wants it for their collection. I think I'm kind of glad that I got rid of it because I mean, I don't know. It's just tank controls galore. It's not very accurate in its uh, mechanics to like shoot enemies. You're like shooting a bubble gun at first. It just, yeah, it's just, it's really bad. Here, listen to this. Player takes control of a mischievous boy who travels through time to rescue his father, armed only with a bubble gun. Yep. The game met with uniformly negative reviews, which citing poor camera work agreed and needlessly cumbersome controls also agreed. Widely considered one of the worst video games ever made. Yeah, yeah, sadly, unfortunate. I mean, because there's so much promise. Like, the cover art is just really cool. Like, very, I don't know, Kid Chameleon meets, you know, insert really cool platforming title here, especially for the time, you know, the 3D graphics were just very well ahead of its time for that particular time. Ah, oh boy. Uh, development. The game was showcased at E3 97. Traveler's Tales founder John Burton revealed uh, the video posted in September 2018. The poor controls were a result of the publisher requesting that the controls be changed from directional movement to tank controls, similar to Tomb Raider. Well, I disagree with that. Leading to issues with how the game's camera engine was designed. Burton also claimed his involvement in the game was limited due to being preoccupied with Sonic R at the time, which is a racing game on Sega Saturn, and then effectively made the publisher in charge. Gotcha. <clears throat> Here we go. Uh, GameSpot noted that the objects behind the player character often obscure the view of what lies ahead. Yep. GamePro said that whenever the player character stops, the camera moves in so tightly that the player cannot see nearby enemies and obstacles. Yes, agreed, because I felt like I kept getting attacked by what the fuck, I couldn't see it. Additionally, criticizing the game for its inconsistent camera angles and level design, which is straightforward to the point of being dull. Yes. Electronic Gaming Monthly summed up that Rascal combines poor camera work with horrible controls to give it one of the worst 3D platforming experiences yet. Uh, 49% review aggregation website game rankings based on five reviews. Yep, that's all you really need to know. I felt like it had promise. Uh, it's a really cool concept for a game, but it just, ugh, it's just atrocious. Let me uh, take a look. Oh, I wanted to pull up um, price charting here. So Rampage World Tour. If you want your own copy, uh, loose, the disc is about $11. Complete, about $18. So if you go to a mom and pop store, expect maybe probably $20 to $25, which isn't bad, but I wouldn't want to spend that. Now, let me take a look at a rascal here for you guys on price charting. Oh, okay. PS1. Ooh, the disc alone is uh, about $7.40. A complete $9. So I would expect probably about $10 to $15 if you want a really shitty game. <laughs> I'd rather just spend $15 on food instead. <laughs> All right. I'm going to be talking about Pandemonium. And this has a lot of promise. The controls are okay. I... When I first uh, started it as a platformer, I was expecting something similar along the lines to maybe like Klonoa, which is a phenomenal platformer, as well as Tomba. Ugh. Excuse me. Anyway, it is a 1996 platform video game developed by Toys for Bob and published by Crystal Dynamics for PS1, as well as Sega Saturn didn't know that. So if I go to Japan again and I find a Japanese copy, I'm picking it up just for the sake of having one. It was also on iOS, apparently. Features Fargus, the Joker, and Nikki, a sorceress who unwittingly casts spells as they destroy the town. The goal of the game is to reach the wishing engine where they can wish the town back to normal. For each level, the player can choose which character to be. I played as Fargus each time. I think I got through maybe, I don't know, two or three stages, and I just kept getting hurt. I should have done uh, save states to continue the game, but I didn't. Perhaps I'll pick it back up. Uh, it has promise. I I've enjoyed it so far. It it's a little difficult. Maybe that or I just suck. Anyway. Consisting of a variety of unique gameplay objects such as watermelons, clouds, spider webs, and logs, a sequel, Pandemonium 2, or Miracle Jumpers in Japan, released 97 for the PS1 as well as Microsoft Windows. <clears throat> it is a 2.5D-based game, 
in a typical 3D fashion for the time, but the gameplay itself is 2D, obviously platforming, you know, jump on enemies and so forth and boss battles. It's kind of like, it's very similar to like if Klonoa and uh, maybe like Nights into Dreams in terms of color and variety kind of came together. At least that's how I view it. There are power-ups located in each level with varying effects. One is a freeze ray, which turns enemies into ice, while the other is a shrink ray, reducing the size of enemies to the point where the player, the player character can step onto them. Uh, development and release. Uh, the team uh, who developed this game uh, concentrated on building a prototype level to demonstrate it at the Electronic Entertainment Expo in 95. Once this was done, set designers and artists were brought on to help create the bulk of the game, bringing development team up to 30 people. That's a lot for the time. Early development, it was planned to record hundreds of one-liners for the playable characters, similar to the earlier Crystal Dynamics game, Gex. Ah, uh, that makes perfect sense now. I mean, it's it's similar in terms of its quirkiness and color. Gex is fun, but the first one is a little more of a original 2D platformer, but when you get like into, like, was it Gex 3, Enter the Gecko? It, it's a lot more of a, a 3D-based uh, driven kind of platformer, kind of similar to like Rayman 2, which was also awesome. Anyway... Having decided to step down as a publisher and focus on Crystal Dynamics, sold the publication rights for Pandemonium, uh, EA Electronic Arts, once the game was finished. As usual, for Crystal Dynamics games, the European publishing rights were given to BMG Interactive. However, BMG decided against the publishing of the Saturn version. Oh. So Sega of Europe purchased the rights from BMG and published that version. The Saturn European release uh, was originally slated for May of 97, but was pushed back to June so the bug could be fixed. Well, I answered... Oh, here we go. Hang on. There's a... Uh, oh, the Japanese version of the game called Magical Hoppers has considerable changes to the story, characters, and cutscenes, and is distributed by Bandai. Interesting. I'm going to have to see if I can find that one. I wonder how much it costs. I will have to look it up via price charting. The PS version was released on the PS Store as of October 8, 2009. Reception. GamePro concluded the game to be a mixed bag. Advised gamers to rent it to determine if they were interested in purchasing it. Yeah, I, I can see that. I probably wouldn't have bought it. I would have rented it first. I mean, I'm glad that I have it digitally and I got it on the cheap. So anyway. GameSpot gave it a largely negative review, arguing that the level design is flawed and the two playable characters are not differentiated enough. Yeah, I can see that, having only played as Fargus, though. However, GamePro and Sushi X of Electronic Gaming Monthly uh, optioned that the music was... Uh, what the fuck? Anyway, their opinion was that the music was both well done and consistently suited the tone. That's what I was trying to get across. Jeez, I can't fucking speak English. Next Generation summarizes that while Pandemonium keeps the player on the rails, it's still an enjoyable and extremely colorful ride. Uh, agreed. I enjoyed it for what it was so far. Challenging, and perhaps I'll get back into it eventually. Let's see the uh, price now. I'm curious. Pandemonium price charting that way i can tell you guys because i want to know too ah uh, oh here we go sega saturn uh 30 or 58 complete on saturn and that's the u.s release interesting pal sega saturn well that would be the uh, european one um oh it was also on engage which is the uh, phone um game i guess at the time uh, PS1, if you want it, it's $18 loose or $25 complete. So expect probably about $30 to $35 complete if you want an original copy. Or new for $80 if you want a sealed copy. I don't know why people buy sealed copies. I want to open them. Or if, if it were cheap, I would buy two. That way I can keep one sealed in the event that I decide to accrue interest. Obviously one that I can play. Anyway, all right, moving on. R-Type Delta on PS1 is what I was playing. And such a fun shoot 'em up Man, I love my shmups, dude. So much fucking fun. Developed by Irem and released for PS1 uh, in 1998, it is the fourth game within the R-Type series, featuring the first 3D graphics for the uh, franchise. Received generally positive reviews from critics. 
a shoot 'em up game set in the year 2164, offering different fighters with different force wave cannon combinations for the player to choose from. The uh, mechanics are great. It controls well. The music is great. The bosses are fun. I think I only got through maybe one or two stages, and I, I just I kept dying. It, it's it's a very fun but yet difficult in its own right uh, shoot 'em up. Very very fun. Every force has a dose gauge, and when the dosage becomes 100%, the player can use the fighter's delta attack, a super weapon that depends on the fighter being used, will uh, obviously have different uh, waves of uh, ammunition to be shot, is what I was trying to say. Receptively, receiving favorable reviews from review aggregation website Game Rankings and NextGen said that the game was overall a fantastic-looking effort, but proof that the gameplay limits of its genre while soon relegate all 2D shooters to classic collections. I disagree. It just it really depends on the type of game, and I think they did a good job. It's it's basically 2.5D in a 3D world, but it's not like open world. It's still, you know, your typical horizontal shooter, left to right. In Japan, Famitsu giving it a score of 34 out of 40. Game Pro calling it an excellent time waster, full of tasty eye candy and time-tested blasting goodness. Agreed. It was phenomenal. The best R-type type, type title ever, according to EGM, Electronic Gaming Monthly. While Peter Bartholo of GameSpot said that the Japanese import, if there's one PlayStation shooter to own, R-Type Delta is that shooter. The game's core graphics were highlighted for the diversity, color, details, and complex polygon models for the time, with GameSpot noting that each enemy offers unique explosions and attacks. The publication also praised the top-notch dynamic soundtrack, agreed for the giving the game a catchy fusion of rock and techno. It, yeah, it's a great, great soundtrack, with the Japanese imports surrounding uh, that as well. In 2015, Hardcore Gaming 101, including the game on the list of 200 best video games of all time. Wow. It is really good. I give them that. I don't know if I... Well, maybe if you, like, narrowed it down to, like, 200 of the best uh, shooters, sure. But, like, 200 of the best video games, period, of all time? I don't know. That's subjective. Anyway, let's take a look at PS1. Since it's a shooter, I'm going to say it's probably rather expensive. R-Type Delta. Let me take a look here. Yep. I had a feeling. Uh, loose, you're looking at 105. CIB, 225. So I would expect probably around 250. I get that if you go to a mom and pop store. New, sealed, $315. That's that's incredible. Wow. Anyway, all right, moving on to the next game that I was playing. Super Back to the Future 2, a Super Famicom uh, game. Yes, I have it hacked on my Super Nintendo Mini. Well worth your time uh, if you want, you know, like Back to the Future, uh, it's an interesting kind of platformer. The game mechanics are a little strange. Maybe I need to give it a little more time. Maybe I need to take my time when it comes to platforming going through this level. I don't even think I could beat fucking the first level. I don't know if I was in the right state of mind or what. Like, I just, I don't know. I really enjoy my platformers too. And I definitely knew that this was the one that was the one to play compared to the one on the original Super Nintendo, as well as the original Nintendo. Those Back to the Future games, sure, hold a nostalgic place in my heart. They're just not very good. Uh, this is probably the uh, definitely successor of those and worth your time playing. <sighs> Based on the film, of course, produced and released by Toshiba on July 13th as of 1993 in Japan only. Marty has returned from his trip in 1955, of course, Delorean Time Machine. It's basically, it takes place in the film and you're platforming. And that's all I really have on it. Let me see what I... <laughs> I couldn't find anything, probably because it's a Japanese-based game, but I obviously have it on my uh, Super Nintendo uh, Mini. Uh, so Super Back to the Future, I I'm curious what it costs. It's got to be cheap because it's a Japanese-based um, Super Famicom cart. Super Back to the Future, ooh, well, I mean, depending on what store I go to, they, man, they have a English translation cart, probably 20 bucks. You can probably find it on, like, eBay or... Uh, not Reddit, uh, Etsy or something. But anyway, Loose, 
according to uh, price charting at $70. CIB, 220. So I would say expect probably 240, 250. Wow, that's that's incredible, especially for a Japanese-based uh, Super Famicom cart. Usually they're, you know, 10 to 20 bucks. Uh, if I can find it when I'm in Japan for the right price, I'm getting it, man. If it's like, you know, 20 bucks American, yeah, I'm getting that. I'm like, damn. Because their boxes are so cool over there, too, in Japan. Man, 220 complete, though? Like, nah, I'm not. Nope. Not doing that. All right. I got a couple more games to uh, discuss with you guys. Okay, so I was playing Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. It's considered to be, like, the baby-level entry into uh, Final Fantasy or just JRPGs in general. But uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it, actually, surprisingly. It feels like it's open-world compa uh, comparatively to Final Fantasy 2, a.k.a. 4, on Super Nintendo in terms of its look and aesthetics, uh, you can only have two characters on screen. It's still uh, turn-based. It's just, it's different. Like, it looks like how Final Fantasy 2 slash 4 did, which is, you know, 4 over here. Well, excuse me. It was 4 in Japan, but obviously Final Fantasy 2 over here in the States when it came out on Super Nintendo. But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I enjoy it. It is easy in its own way, but it's also, it, I had to go back and grind a couple times to beat some bosses, too. Anyway. It was first released in North America in 92, marketed as a simplified role-playing game designed for the entry-level player, as I've stated, in an attempt to broaden the genre's appeal at the time, and I think it managed to succeed. The game's presentation the battle system is broadly similar to that of the main series. Eh, yes and no, because when you're playing normal Final Fantasy uh, 2D at the time, you were either on the left or the right. In this, you're in the foreground, and then you're facing forward, and then your enemy is facing you, kind of like how uh, Earthbound is. Although, obviously, Earthbound, you don't see your character. Anyway. The game's presentation and battle system is broadly, as I already mentioned. Okay, action-adventure game elements. It was also the first Final Fantasy game to be released in Europe. Wow, okay. The player controls a youth named Benjamin, who I decided to name an inside joke that uh, my sister and I have. <laughs> his name is not Benjamin. I named him Duty. Anyway, <laughs> in his quest to save the world, his goal is to reclaim a set of stolen crystals that determine in the state of the world's four elemental powers. I already have one. I think I'm on my way to uh, get the second one, if I'm not mistaken. I'm about four hours in. The gameplay takes a departure from the main series in a variety of ways, eliminating many series staples such as random battles. Yes, however, you can go into certain uh, caves or, uh, you know, crystal pyramids or whatever the fuck, and there's random encounters in there. Uh, but for the most part, yes, you get to choose which enemies you want to fight. Save points, you get to save at any time, which is nice, or use a save state, which is what I've been doing as well. Manual equipment and uh, the party system. The game received middling reviews and sales in North American Japan, citing its simplified gameplay, lack of depth, and game story. Correct. There's not much of a story, really. Very, very uh, bland. It has retained its reputation for being a beginner's Final Fantasy and has been praised for its music. Yes, surprisingly, it does have very good music. Well, it is Squaresoft, so that makes perfect sense. Uh, the battle system, uh, like I said, you face the enemies on screen. It's a trademark of the uh, main series uh, instead of uh, random encounters. Like I said, it's a little different. The player is given the option of approaching the enemy and engaging battle. Once engaged, the player is thrust in the battle screen, which presents a window-based menu. Uh, you get to uh, either choose battle, run, or control battle. You get to use either spells, depending on how much magic you have, items, and so forth to help you out in battle. The game's battle system relies on a conditional turn-based combat, just like the original series, where the characters and enemies cycle through rounds and battling each other with the first action of the turn awarded to the fastest character. Enemy sprites are always far larger than player sprites in battle. Despite appearing further away in the game camera, some animals attack by physically crushing the player. Yes, very, very true. The life bar is a little confusing, too. Uh, it's represented by incremental life bar there's no number next to it you have little okay picture like how metroid works like you have your little bars below your main bar 
but obviously there's no number next to it. You just get attacked, and it's like, oh, you lost, I don't know, three of your five uh, bars. Now you're at, I don't know, uh, what, three red bars, and you have two yellow, and then you have, like, half of a little bit of a yellow bar. There's no number denoting that unless you get, like, a cure potion or you get cured by your uh, partner while you're playing the game. It, there's, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm still enjoying it regardless. If all characters' life bar reaches zero, the game is over, but the player is given the option of continuing and restarting that particular battle at what health you started the you know, battle at. If the player chooses the option, the main character's attack power may suffer temporarily as a penalty. I get that. Players are immediately thrust into a battle while entering a battlefield and must win 10 enemy battles to clear the them out. Picture like how... Okay. Picture how the um, arena works, so the Colosseum in uh, Fire Emblem. It's like that, but there's no uh, sense of betting. You just, uh, there's 10 different um, battlefields that you basically get to go through. And sometimes you'll win potions, you'll win uh, extra uh, magic for your spells, and you also get to, um, you know, sometimes get obviously a more experience than you anticipated to level up and so forth. Oh boy, what else we got here on this? Uh, development wise, the American release of Final Fantasy IV was altered to remake the game simpler. Mystic Quest was to take this one step further, and the Japanese developers worked with American offices to make sure the game was accessible to children. It's still difficult. I, I think even, you know, if this came out in 92, well, I would have been what, fucking four or five years old. No, I, I wouldn't have been playing this. Hell no. The soundtrack is phenomenal. I'm looking at it right now. It's just, anyway. Mystic Quest sold a total of 800,000 units, with roughly half of these sold in Japan. Original North American release, scoring 16 out of 20 by GamePro and 14, what is it, uh, 0.9 out of 20 in the November 1992 issue of Nintendo Power. 86% electronic uh, monthly gaming. Got it, got it, got it, okay. Uh, what do we got here? The game ultimately failed in its bid to bring mainstream North American popularity uh, to console RPGs, a feat that wouldn't be accomplished until Final Fantasy VII, of course, five years later simultaneously alienating fans of the series, anticipating another epic follow-up of Final Fantasy IV. Electronic Games described the title as Final Fantasy with an identity crisis. Yeah, they should have just called it Mystic Quest. I, I agree. Due to the inherent flaw of creating a game that didn't appeal to the masses of the hardcore gaming audience at the time. Because clearly we already had Dragon Quest at the time. We had the East series on uh, TurboGrafx as well as PC Engine. So there was definitely uh, RPGs at the time. And this was their way to open it to players. And they clearly, unfortunately, didn't do that well. But... I enjoy it for what it is regardless. It, it's fun in its own right. I've only played uh, Final Fantasy IV. I'm about 30 hours in. I play Final Fantasy um, Adventure, which was the mana game on Game Boy. I beat that one. I haven't beaten Final Fantasy IV, also known as two, quote-unquote, like I said in Super Nintendo. Um, and I've played a little bit of six, and I've beaten seven. I, I There's obviously many more that I, I should play. I just haven't gotten around to them yet. But I've, overall, I'm enjoying the Final Fantasy games that I have played. Okay, I'm going to be talking Crisis Force. Ooh, actually, let me get back to uh, price charting real quick. So Mystic Quest. I want to see how much it costs. I don't think it's really... It can't be that expensive. Okay, so Mystic Quest. Loose, $15. If you want that cardboard box, you're looking at $71. So I anticipate probably about $80 uh, complete. Wow, wow, holy crap. So sealed, brand new, about $1,000, if not nearly $1,100. That's, that's insane. No, thank you. No, no, thank you. It was also released on a Game Boy in uh, the PAL regions in Europe. That's interesting. As well as Super Nintendo PAL regions. But, ooh, there's also a Mystic Quest Legend. There's a big box that was released in uh, Europe. That would be kind of cool to have. Kind of like how Earthbound was a big box. Okay, anyway, back to Crisis Force. A 1991 vertically scrolling a shooting game released by Konami in Japan for the Famicom. Also known as the uh, Family Computer. I have it, yes, hacked on my Super Nintendo because I managed to... Uh, 
put the right bin and Q file and command file in order to play it. it. It took me a while to figure it out, but I'm glad I have it because it is a very expensive game on um, price charting. Before I get into talking about the game, since I mentioned price charting, I will look it up for you guys. It is, it is not cheap. I, I think I saw it maybe once when I was in Japan. Uh, what? When, when did I go? Uh, May of 22. Yeah, so almost, uh, yeah, a year and a half ago. And I think it was expensive there too. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Loose, 104. Complete in their Famicom box, 271. So I'm guessing around 275 to $300. If you want it new, $860. Holy crap. If I can find it loose for a decent price, I might get it. Maybe just get like a repro box or like, you know, a plastic sleeve to put it in because it is... There's a little bit of a slowdown when you're playing it, but it is a very, very good shooter that nobody really talks about, especially for the 8-bit era. It is phenomenal. The player controls one of two fighter ships uh, piloted by Asuka and Maya, a pair of twin siblings descended from the ancient civilization of Mu, who must save the world from a breed of artificial monsters from the lost civilization of Atlantis. I mean, even the cover art looks phenomenal, dude. And it's Konami, man. It's Konami 8-bit. You can't go wrong. You just can't. Well, maybe double dribble, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, it's a vertical shooter compared to uh, the horizontal shooter, as I mentioned, the uh, R-Type. But uh, the main feature of the game is the player's ability to transform its ship into one of three different forms, each with its unique attack method. It is an overhead, scrolling, vertical shoot-em-up. The game uh, allows for two-player co-op play. If I had somebody to play with, I would love to. That'd be awesome. Kind of like how uh, was it Arrow Fighters or uh, Sonic Wings is on Super Nintendo. Now, those games are worth playing, but also very, very fucking expensive. Ah, the main feature of the game is the player's ability to alter the form of their ship, the plot. Okay, what do we got here? It's just beautifully colored. Uh, like I said, there's a little bit of slowdown. It's almost like an early, very, very early uh, concept uh, prototype of a bullet hell, but not nearly as understood as uh, PlayStation 1 or Sega Saturn bullet hell. You know, it's it gets pretty hectic, but like I said, there is slowdown because there's a lot moving on, especially for the processor at the time. But, uh, as Konami's final shooting game for the Famicom, it was developed to push the hardware specifications to its limits, as I've pretty much already stated, and utilize Konami's custom VRC4 chip used for the Famicom version of Gradius 2. Also a very, very well done uh, shooter for the time to allow for four-way scrolling and large bosses. However, because of the game's late release during the Famicom's lifespan, a year after the launch of its successor, Super Famicom, Crisis Force didn't achieve the popularity that Konami would have expected. It also features early parallax scrolling. Uh, therefore, you're moving and the background's moving at the same time, uh, parallax scrolling. Uh. Excuse me. Released August 27th, 1991 in Japan for the Famicom, never released outside of Japan. And I'm glad that I have a copy of it digitally because that is an expensive game. Uh, the game's music was composed by Kenichi Matsubura, a former member of the Konami Kukuhia uh, Club who worked on Castlevania II, Simon's Quest, and Contra Force. Uh, Castlevania II, it's a, it's a very misunderstood kind of interesting, like Zelda II kind of adventure, especially on the NES. And uh, the music in Castlevania II is fucking incredible. So, so good. Contra Force, I understand what they were trying to do with that game. I, it's, it shouldn't have been called a Contra game. And that game has the worst like slowdown in like any NES game. It, it should have just been, I don't know, called like Army Force or something. It's still fun-ish in its own right to play, but that slowdown is atrocious. The soundtrack was included in Konami's shooting collection CD box set released September 22nd, 2011. Oh my God, that sounds like something I gotta get. Like, God, the music in this game is awesome as well as Castlevania 2. Holy crap. Anyway, 
reception before I get into the last game and I close out this episode. Crisis Force received mostly mostly positive reviews from reception and critics. Public response was also positive. Japanese readers of Famicom Magazine voted to give it a 20.3 out of 30, indicating popular following among the Famicom uh, user base. Famitsu's four reviewers regarded the game to be amazing, but criticized the flickering. Yes, I agree, because there's too much going on. They push it to its limits. I've already stated that. When too many objects are present on screen and controls. Controls are really easy to, to understand. It's just A and B, and you move with the D-pad. Whoop-dee-doo, it's fucking, it's not hard. Anyway. Retro Gamer uh, praised the game's use of parallax scrolling, lush visual, soundtrack, weapon system, and fast pacing. Yes, agreed. Likewise, Nell Sobimini of Shmups, a classic network of GameSpy, complimented the frantic gameplay, co-op play, graphics, and fast-paced soundtrack. The R-Wing makes an appearance as a playable ship in Konami's Air Force Delta series. Oh, I did have that on my PS2. Okay, that makes perfect sense. They're both Konami. All right. Last game before I close out this episode. I was playing American Tale, Fievel Goes West. Ooh, let me look up price charting for you on that one, too. I want to say that's also an expensive one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I believe it is. And it was a PAL release only, I think. Or maybe it wasn't. Let me take a look here. So I, I will talk about the game in a minute. Okay. Oh, so they do have it on the Super Nintendo in the States. Loose, $46. Complete in box, 297 Wow. You're probably looking at maybe 310 315 mom and pop store. For the PAL regions in Europe, it is $42, close to the loose price in the U.S. CIB, $101. So maybe $110, $115, depending on where you find it. But uh, it's a pretty fun, uh, was it, Hudson Soft? Yeah, who are the developer, as well as, um, what, like Bomberman and, uh, um, oh my god, uh, obviously the NEC uh, PC Engine graph, uh, Turbo Graphics and so forth, Hudson Soft. They also did, uh, what, uh, Bonk and... Um, god, I'm like having a brain fart here. Adventure Island, that's uh, a lot of fun, too. Anyway... All right, Bible Goes West, relatively expensive game, but uh, well worth your time. Um, a Super NES game released in 1994 is the second game released by uh, a film based on the same name, the other title being the adventure game for DOS published by Capstone Software. The player must either fight or avoid cats and other obstacles as they scroll westward. You, ha you have a pop gun, you obviously play as Fievel. The character is armed with a pop gun that can eliminate enemies using a non-violent approach to the Wild Wild West genre. I get it. Storyline of the game takes place and takes place in 1890 AD. The game is about a three-inch tall cartoon mouse named Fievel who must make his way through the 1870s and 1900s Wild West. Setting is based on the film of the same name released back in 1991. Receptively, it was never reviewed by an entertainment software rating board, uh, but it was reviewed by Nintendo Power in the August 1994 issue. Wow. Giving it a 93 out of 100. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I mean, it's, it's relatively light, kind of like how... Uh, bonkers was uh the capcom game the side-scrolling uh platformer it, it's fun it there's a little bit of a challenge but it's a relatively easy uh entry level uh platformer i mean especially if you're a fan of the uh, american tale uh films you know fievel and so forth i mean i would say it's up your alley go play it all right so i talked movies and video games episode 110 as always everybody thank you for the love and support enjoy the rest of your day weekend wherever you are Merry early Christmas, and if anybody wants to be on the show, I'm always down to you know shoot the shit about pretty much anything and everything that we've enjoyed uh, as adults as well as kids. Thank you.